Book Two, Part Four of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Histories, Volume One, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Book Two, Part Four, Paragraph Sixty-Six to Ninety-Two. There are many household animals, and there would be many more, were it not for what happens among the cats. When the females have a litter, they are no longer receptive to the males. Those that seek to have intercourse with them cannot, so their recourse. Is to steal and carry off and kill the kittens, but they do not eat what they have killed. The mothers, deprived of their young and desiring to have more, will then approach the males, for they are creatures that love offspring. And when a fire breaks out, very strange things happen among the cats. The Egyptians stand around in a broken line, thinking more of the cats than of quenching the burning. But the cats slip through or leap over the men and spring into the fire. When this happens, there is great mourning in Egypt. The occupants of a house where a cat has died a natural death shave their eyebrows and no more. Where a dog has died, the head and the whole body are shaven. Dead cats are taken away to sacred buildings in the town of Bubastis. Where they are embalmed and buried, female dogs are buried by the townsfolk in their own towns, in sacred coffins, and the like is done with mongooses. Shrew mice and hawks are taken away to Buto, ibises to the city of Hermes. There are few bears, and the wolves are little bigger than foxes. Both these are buried wherever they are found lying. The nature of crocodiles is as follows: for the four winter months it eats nothing; it has four feet and lives both on land and in the water, for it lays eggs and hatches them out on land, and spends the greater part of the day on dry ground, and the night in the river, the water being warmer than the air and dew. No mortal creature of all which we know grows from so small a beginning to such greatness. For its eggs are not much bigger than goose eggs, and the young crocodile is of a proportional size, but it grows to a length of twenty-eight feet and more. It has eyes like pig's eyes, and long, protruding teeth. It is the only animal that has no tongue. It does seem to move the lower jaw, but brings the upper jaw down upon the lower, uniquely among beasts. It also has strong claws. And a scaly, impenetrable hide on its back. It is blind in the water, but very keen of sight in the air. Since it lives in the water, its mouth is all full of leeches. All birds and beasts flee from it, except the sandpiper, with which it is at peace, because this bird does the crocodile service. For whenever the crocodile comes ashore out of the water. 
and then opens its mouth, and it does this mostly to catch the west wind. The sandpiper goes into its mouth and eats the leeches. The crocodile is pleased by this service, and does the sandpiper no harm. Some of the Egyptians consider crocodiles sacred. Others do not, but treat them as enemies. Those who live near Thebes and Lake Moeris consider them very sacred. Every household raises one crocodile, trained to be tame. They put ornaments of glass and gold on its ears and bracelets on its forefeet, provide special food and offerings to it, and give the creatures the best of treatment while they live. After death, the crocodiles are embalmed and buried in sacred coffins. But around Elephantine, they are not held sacred, and are even eaten. The Egyptians do not call them crocodiles, but kampse. The Ionians name them crocodiles from their resemblance to the lizards which they have in their walls. There are many different ways of crocodile hunting. I will write of the way that I think most worth mentioning. The hunter baits a hook with a hog's back, and then lets it float into the midst of the river. He himself stays on the bank with a young live pig, which he beats. Hearing the squeals of the pig, the crocodile goes after the sound and meets the bait, which it swallows. Then the hunters pull the line. When the crocodile is drawn ashore, first of all the hunter smears its eyes over with mud. When this is done, the quarry is very easily mastered. No light matter without that. Hippopotamuses are sacred in the district of Paprimis, but not elsewhere in Egypt. They present the following appearance. Four-footed, with cloven hoofs like cattle, blunt-nosed, with a horse's mane, visible tusks, a horse's tail and voice, big as the biggest bull. Their hide is so thick that when it is dried, spare shafts are made of it. Paragraph 72. Otters are found in the river, too, which the Egyptians consider sacred, and they consider sacred that fish, too, which is called the scale-fish, and the eel. These, and the fox-goose among birds, are said to be sacred to the god of the Nile. There is another sacred bird, too, whose name is Phoenix. I myself have never seen it, only pictures of it for the bird seldom comes into Egypt. Once in five hundred years, as the people of Heliopolis say, it is said that the phoenix comes when his father dies. If the picture truly shows his size and appearance, his plumage is partly golden and partly red. He is most like an eagle in shape and size. What they say this bird manages to do is incredible to me. Flying from Arabia to the Temple of the Sun, they say, he conveys his father encased in myrrh and buries him at the Temple of the Sun. This is how he conveys him. He first moulds an egg of myrrh as heavy as he can carry, then tries lifting it, and when he has tried it, he then hollows out the egg and puts his father 
which is the same in weight with his father lying in it. And he conveys him encased to the temple of the sun in Egypt. This is what they say this bird does. Near Thebes there are sacred snakes, harmless to men, small in size, and bearing two horns on the top of their heads. These, when they die, are buried in the temple of Zeus, to whom they are said to be sacred. There is a place in Arabia, not far from the town of Bhutto, where I went to learn about the winged serpents. When I arrived there, I saw innumerable bones and backbones of serpents, many heaps of backbones, great and small, and even smaller. This place, where the backbones lay scattered, is where a narrow mountain pass opens into a great plain, which adjoins the plain of Egypt. Winged serpents are said to fly from Arabia at the beginning of spring, making for Egypt. But the ibis birds encounter the invaders in this pass and kill them. The Arabians say that the ibis is greatly honored by the Egyptians for this service, and the Egyptians give the same reason for honoring these birds. Now this is the appearance of the ibis. It is all quite black, with the legs of a crane, and the beak sharply hooked, and it is as big as a land rail. Such is the appearance of the ibis, which fights with the serpents. Those that most associate with men, for there are two kinds of ibis, have the whole head and neck bare of feathers. Their plumage is white, except the head and neck and wingtips and tail, these being quite black. The legs and beak of the bird are like those of the other ibis. The serpents are like water-snakes. Their wings are not feathered, but very like the wings of a bat. I have now said enough concerning creatures that are sacred. Among the Egyptians themselves, those who live in the cultivated country are the most assiduous of all men at preserving the memory of the past, and none whom I have questioned are so skilled in history. They practice the following way of life. For three consecutive days in every month they purge themselves, pursuing health by means of emetics and drenches, for they think that it is from the food they eat that all sicknesses come to men. Even without this, the Egyptians are the healthiest of all men, next to the Libyans, the explanation of which, in my opinion, is that the climate in all seasons is the same. For change is the great cause of men's falling sick, more especially changes of seasons. They eat bread, making loaves, which they call celestis, of coarse grain. For wine, they use a drink made from barley, for they have no wines in their country. They eat fish, either raw and sun-dried, or preserved with brine. Quails and ducks and small birds are salted and eaten raw. All other kinds of birds, as well as fish, except those that the Egyptians consider sacred, are eaten roasted or boiled. After rich men's repasts, a man carries around an image in a coffin, painted and carved in exact imitation of a corpse two or four feet long. This 
he shows to each of the company, saying, While you drink and enjoy, look on this, for to this state you must come when you die. Such is the custom at their symposia. They keep the customs of their fathers, adding none to them. Among other notable customs of theirs is this, that they have one song, the Linus song, which is sung in Phoenicia and Cyprus and elsewhere. Each nation has a name of its own for this, but it happens to be the same song that the Greeks sing, and call Linus, so that of many things in Egypt that amaze me, one is, where did the Egyptians get Linus? Plainly, they have always sung this song, but in Egyptian Linus is called Maneros. The Egyptians told me that Maneros was the only son of their first king, who died prematurely, and this dirge was sung by the Egyptians in his honor, and this, they say, was their earliest and their only chant. There is a custom, too, which no Greeks, except the Lacedaemonians, have in common with the Egyptians. Younger men, encountering their elders, yield the way and stand aside, and rise from their seats for them when they approach. But they are like none of the Greeks in this. Passers-by do not address each other, but salute by lowering the hand to the knee. They wear linen tunics with fringes hanging about the legs, called calasiris, and loose white woolen mantles over these. But nothing woolen is brought into temples or buried with them. That is impious. They agree in this with practices called Orphic and Bacchic, but in fact Egyptian and Pythagorean, for it is impious too for one partaking of these rites to be buried in woolen wrappings. There is a sacred legend about this. Other things originating with the Egyptians are these. Each month and day belong to one of the gods, and according to the day of one's birth, are determined how one will fare, and how one will end, and what will one be like. Those Greeks occupied with poetry exploit this. More portents have been discovered by them than by all other people. When a portent occurs, they take note of the outcome and write it down, and if something of a like kind happens again, they think it will have a like result. As to the art of divination among them, it belongs to no man, but to some of the gods. There are in their country oracles of Heracles, Apollo, Athena, Artemis, Ares, and Zeus, and of Leto, the most honored of all, in the town of Pluto. Nevertheless, they have several ways of divination, not just one. The practice of medicine is so specialized among them that each physician is a healer of one disease and no more. All the country is full of physicians, some of the eye, some of the teeth, some of what pertains to the belly, and some of internal diseases. Paragraph 85 They mourn and bury the dead like this. Whenever a man of note is lost to his house by death, all the women of the house daub their faces 
or heads with mud, and then they leave the corpse in the house and roam about the city lamenting, with their garments girt around them and their breasts showing, and with them all the women of their relatives. Elsewhere the men lament, with garments girt likewise. When this is done, they take the dead body to be embalmed. There are men whose sole business this is, and who have this special craft. When a dead body is brought to them, they show those who brought it wooden models of corpses, painted likenesses. The most perfect way of embalming belongs, they say, to one whose name it would be impious for me to mention in treating such a matter. The second way, which they show, is less perfect than the first, and cheaper. And the third is the least costly of all. Having shown these, they asked those who brought the body in which way they desire to have it prepared. Having agreed on a price, the bearers go away, and the workmen, left alone in their place, embalm the body. If they do this in the most perfect way, they first draw out part of the brain through the nostrils with an iron hook, and inject certain drugs into the rest. Then, making a cut near the flank with a sharp knife of Ethiopian stone, they take out all the intestines and clean the belly, rinsing it with palm wine and bruised spices. They sew it up again after filling the belly with pure ground myrrh and cassia and any other spices except frankincense. After doing this, they conceal the body for seventy days, embalmed in saltpetre. No longer time is allowed for the embalming, and when the seventy days have passed, they wash the body and wrap the whole of it in bandages of fine linen cloth, anointed with gum, which the Egyptians mostly use instead of glue. Then they give the dead man back to his friends. These make a hollow wooden figure like a man, in which they enclose the corpse, shut it up, and keep it safe in a coffin chamber, placed erect against the wall. That is how they prepare the dead in the most costly way. Those who want the middle way and shun the costly, they prepare as follows. The embalmers charge their syringes with cedar oil and fill the belly of the dead man with it, without making a cut or removing the intestines but injecting the fluid through the anus and preventing it from running out. Then they embalm the body for the appointed days. On the last day they drain the belly of the cedar oil, which they put in before. It has such great power as to bring out with it the internal organs and intestines all dissolved. Meanwhile the flesh is eaten away by the saltpetre, and in the end Nothing is left of the body but hide and bones. Then the embalmers give back the dead body with no more ado. The third manner of embalming, the preparation of the poorer dead, is this. They cleanse the belly with a purge, embalm the body for the seventy days, and then give it back to be taken away. Wives of Notable Men and women of great beauty and reputation, 
are not at once given to the embalmers, but only after they have been dead for three or four days. This is done to deter the embalmers from having intercourse with the women. For it is said that one was caught having intercourse with the fresh corpse of a woman, and was denounced by his fellow workmen. Anyone, Egyptian or foreigner, known to have been carried off by a crocodile or drowned by the river itself, must by all means be embalmed and wrapped as attractively as possible, and buried in a sacred coffin by the people of the place where he is cast ashore. None of his relatives or friends may touch him, but his body is considered something more than human, and is handled and buried by the priests of the Nile themselves. The Egyptians shun using Greek customs, and, generally speaking, the customs of all other peoples as well. Yet, though the rest are wary of this, there is a great city called Chemis, in the Theban district, near the new city. In this city is a square temple of Perseus, son of Danae, in a grove of palm trees. Before this temple stand great stone columns, and at the entrance two great stone statues. In the outer court there is a shrine with an image of Perseus standing in it. The people of this chemist say that Perseus is seen often up and down this land, and often within the temple, and that the sandal he wears, which is four feet long, keeps turning up, and that when it does turn up, all Egypt prospers. This is what they say, and their doings in honor of Perseus are Greek, inasmuch as they celebrate games that include every form of contest, and offer animals and cloaks and skins as prizes. When I asked why Perseus appeared only to them, and why, unlike all other Egyptians, they celebrate games, they told me that Perseus was by lineage of their city, for Danaus and Lynceus who travelled to Greece, were of Chemnus, and they traced descent from these down to Perseus. They told how he came to Chemnus too, when he came to Egypt for the reason alleged by the Greeks as well, namely, to bring the Gorgon's head from Libya, and recognize all his relatives, and how he had heard the name of Chemnus from his mother before he came to Egypt. It was at his bidding, they say, that they celebrated the games. All these are the customs of Egyptians who live above the marsh country. Those who inhabit the marshes have the same customs as the rest of Egyptians, even that each man has one wife just like Greeks. They have, besides, devised means to make their food less costly. When the river is in flood and flows over their plains, many lilies which the Egyptians called lotus, grow in the water. They gather these and dry them in the sun. Then they crush the poppy-like center of the plant and bake loaves of it. The root of this lotus is edible also, and of a sweetish taste. It is round and the size of an apple. Other lilies grow in the river, too, that are like roses. The fruit of these is found in a calyx springing from the root by a separate stalk, and it is most like a comb made by wasps. 
This produces many edible seeds, as big as olive pits, which are eaten both fresh and dried. They also use the biblis, which grows annually. It is gathered from the marshes, the top of it cut off and put to other uses, and the lower part, about twenty inches long, eaten or sold. Those who wish to use the biblis at its very best roast it before eating it in a red-hot oven. Some live on fish alone. They catch the fish, take out the intestines, then dry them in the sun, and eat them dried. End of Book 2, Part 4